you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, do you guys put the scripture reading up there? All right. Our scripture reading is from a passage. Let me give you a little bit of background. A number of years ago, maybe 30, a number of years ago, I took a course in seminary, in university, on the book of Isaiah. And one of the things that uh, really struck me about that study of Isaiah is the central role that Isaiah chapter 6 took, this vision that God gave to Isaiah. And ever since then, ever since 30 years ago, I have been preaching from Isaiah chapter 6 when occasion allows me to. And I have spent a fair amount of time looking into the depths of that passage and its central role. And this morning, God willing, I hope to share that with you. So let me read to you. <clears throat> and if I stumble with the words, this is a translation that's a little bit different than mine. So I know the other one off by heart. So if I accidentally say the wrong word in the wrong order, uh, that's what's going on there. So Isaiah chapter 6. It says, in the, year, <clears throat> in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two wings he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook, and the voice of him who called and the Lord, that, sorry, the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a lie, I'm sorry, then one of the seraphs flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and, their, and blind their eyes lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie, wa uh, cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes his people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remains in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. So the holy seed is the stump. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> There are in the Bible, in the Old Testament, 
<clears throat> three revelations of God that are more significant and more revealing than any other revelations of God in the Bible. The three of them are the Garden of Eden, Mount Sinai, and the one that we are going to look at today, Isaiah chapter 6. In each of them, God reveals characteristics of himself that mankind was in serious need of comprehending. Each revelation was so significant that God had it recorded so that each successive generation is also reminded of the nature of God revealed in those events. Each of them, in each of them, the Lord is revealed <clears throat> as king. In the creation, Adam is made to rule as an under king or a vassal king under the king whom, to whom the garden belonged. God gave him a simple constitution. There is one tree that you cannot eat from. The Ten Commandments are the Lord giving his constitution to the nation he rescued out from under the false king, Pharaoh, who had taken them captive. The law, and especially the book of Deuteronomy, functioned as the rules to which each citizen was bound because they lived in God's republic, the promised land. The third revelation, the vision given to the prophet Isaiah, is the, is the Lord again pre, being presented as king. The theme of God being king over the creation is repeated when the angels say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. Then God proceeds as king to judge the people who were unfaithful to the Ten Commandments, to the Garden of Eden, and to the, um, the constitution that he put in place in the book of Deuteronomy. Therefore, it is no mere historical marker that when Isaiah chapter 6 begins, God makes him known as the King of Kings. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The vision given the prophet happened right around the year 752 BC. In the very year that this famous king from Israel died. It was a heavenly spiritual vision, but it very likely occurred right in the temple. That is, <clears throat> I don't think what happened there is that God picked Uzziah up and spiritually brought him to heaven to see this vision. Very likely what happened was is that, that Uzziah got to see spiritually in the temple what was always occurring in the temple. But man's eyes couldn't see it. Remember that when Solomon dedicated the temple in 966 BC, the Bible says that the Lord came down in a cloud in glory to dwell in this earthly temple. Now Solomon said, God can't dwell in this temple. But at the same time, God said, I will put my throne there. So that probably what the prophet saw was the reality of God's glory in the temple that had been there all the time, that was happening all the time, and yet was invisible to human senses. What the vision did, though, is it almost killed the prophet, and it shaked, it shook almost all in the nation to death. This vision was 90% terrible news and only 10% hope for the nation of Israel. And for us, 
this revelation given by God is just as true as when it was given in that day. And the reason is, is that God doesn't change. What we see here is just as true at this very moment. It's just that our eyes can't see it. So, according to 2 Chronicles, and if you have your Bible and you'd like to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we get a bit of background about who this King Uzziah was. And I really don't think you can understand Isaiah chapter 6 very well without understanding who King Uzziah was. So in chapter 26, it says that there is this king named Uzziah. He, be, he went to the throne when he was 16 years old. So you can see that in verse 1. And he became the king after his father Amaziah. And uh, he did a bunch of rebuilding projects. So if you look at verse 3 of Second Chronicles, you'll see that it says Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. So what that means is, for a king, that's a really long time. He reigned in Israel for a very long time. And notice as well, it says his, mother na his mother's name was Jecoliah. She was from Jerusalem. If you go through the book of 1 Kings and you check out, you, you do a parallel between <clears throat> the king and where his mother came from, you will find that kings whose mother came from Jerusalem were generally the good kings. Because they had a mother who lived in the midst of where the temple was and they were generally passionate about raising their children to serve the Lord. All I'm saying is here is that this king had a great advantage in a lot of different ways. So he reigned 52 years. He married well, it says. He Everything seemed to be going along well. Verse 5, he sought the Lord during the days of Zechariah, meaning that he had a good counselor, a good prophet to counsel him, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. See, as long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. So Uzziah is a great guy. He really is. He did so many great things for the nation. If you go through, you'll see that there's all kinds of things that went well. In uh, verse 6, it says that he had military victories, successes in wars. He went to war against the Philistines and broke down the walls of Gath. That's where uh, Goliath was from. Um, and uh, J, uh, ja, Jabne and Ashdod, then he rebuilt towers, and anyway, if you read through there, you can see he was really successful as a military guy. Uh, verse 9 says that he was also successful in business. Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, and at the valley gate, at the angle of the wall, and he fortified them. He also built towers in the desert, and dug many cisterns, because he had much livestock in the foothills and in the plains. He had the people working his fields and vineyards and the hills and fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Sounds like a great guy, right? Successful at business, successful at life. People seemed to love him. He was also good technologically in the nation. Verse 11, Uzziah had a well-trained army, ready to go out by divisions according to their numbers, as, he muster, as mustered by uh, Jael, the secretary, and Maasa, the officer, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the royal officials. Who does that remind you of? <clears throat> this level of organization and discipline. Reminds you of Solomon. If you read through the life of Solomon, he was very much this way. So King Uzziah was patterning his ministry after the great leaders before him, and he had a great uh, army. Notice, I like this in verse 15. It says, uh, in Jerusalem, he made machines designed... Um, I go by skillful men for the use on the towers and on the corner defenses to shoot arrows and hurl large stones. His fame spread far and wide, for he was 
greatly helped until he became a powerful man. Great guy. Other nations feared him. <clears throat> Nobody wanted to go to war with him. He's got these new inventions on how to fight war. Nobody wants, so thou the nation, nobody wants to attack them so they can build their wealth and farm their lands in peace. And the nation is becoming powerful. What's the trouble with success? Sometimes when you're successful, it is the worst thing that can happen to you. Sometimes when you're successful, it can lead to pride. And if it leads to pride, you're better off not to be successful. Because pride has a way of blinding you. Solomon wrote in, uh, in Proverbs, before his downfall, a man's heart is proud. That's exactly what happened to this famous king. If you read verse 16, it says, but after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. I'll go on with that in a second. I just want to say this. There is nothing wrong with being successful. As long as you remember that the more successful you become, the more committed you have to be to being faithful to the Lord. The more successful and powerful and gifted you become in life, the more passionately you should pursue the Lord because it's only in the Lord that there is safety when you get success in this world. His pride led to his downfall. Look at what he did. It says, <clears throat> but at, verse 16, but after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous, notice how they had to be courageous, courageous priests of the Lord followed him in. They confronted him and said, it is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord God. So what are the priests talking about? Are they trying to protect their job in the temple? Don't take our job, we'll get fired. That's not it at all. If you read closely the book of Deuteronomy, you'll see that in chapters 17 and 18, the, the responsibilities for the priest, the prophet, and the king are outlined in that book. And when a king became uh, when somebody became a king in Israel, one of the things that they had to do was write out for themselves a copy, their own personal copy, of the book of Deuteronomy. So there is no way that King Uzziah did not know that in chapter 17 and chapter 18, there are walls of responsibility put between what a prophet can do and a priest can do and a king can do. And to grasp two of those offices was a huge offense before God for two reasons. One, because God said, don't do it. And the other reason is that historically speaking among the nations at this time in around 752, there was this movement for kings, the smaller kings, to try to grasp both offices. It was an international movement that Uzziah was caught up in and he said to himself, well, you know, God, the times are changing. Things are different now. They aren't like they used to be when my father was the king. Times are changing, Lord. We're going to do things this way. You've never heard that before, have you? Things are different now. no. When God puts barriers to the way things ought to be done, it is a God who does not change. And King Uzziah thought that he was so powerful that he could go into the temple and say to God, 
godless and we need to adjust some things around here. What was God's response to that? Did you know that Samuel, when he confronted Saul, when Saul rebelled and did the offering, remember, before Samuel got there? Do you remember what Samuel said to Saul? Rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. King Uzziah was doing the very thing that Saul had done all those years ago. It says in 2 Chronicles, verse 19, Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. Why was he angry? Well, he's saying to the king, who do you, or to the, to the priest, who do you think you are telling me what to do? Don't you know who I am? <clears throat> I'm King Uzziah. I'm the boss around here. So he's angry at them. And it says, while he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord, whose temple? In the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead. So they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. What happened at that moment in time? King real, the King Uzziah realized that he was but the under king in the temple of the one who was the king of kings. Famous though he was, now he is struck with the most unclean list in the list of diseases. He struck with leprosy. This could only mean that first, the king of the nation was under a serious judgment from God. He could not live in the palace. He could not have visitors. And worst of all, he was excluded from going to the temple to plead his case before the Lord that he might be healed. He was left to pray that God would forgive him and heal him and restore him from a lonely house outside of the city and you will notice that that's where he died. Verse 21, King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous and excluded from the temple of the Lord. Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. I have no doubt that King Uzziah from that little house, that little hut outside of the city was praying every day, I'm sorry, forgive me. But the Bible is very clear that it, he, verse 21, King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. What was God's answer to I'm sorry, please forgive me, please heal me, send me back so I can be the king, so Jotham, my son, doesn't have to rule the kingdom in my stead. What a shame it is, God. Don't you know the other nations think so well of me? <clears throat> and God's answer was no. There's a second thing that it means when the king is struck with leprosy and God refuses to heal him of that leprosy. It also meant that the whole nation was under the same judgment. God's setup for the kingdom of Israel was called the representative principle, meaning that the king's actions determined how God felt about them. Do you remember when David counted the fighting men? In Israel? And God judged him. How did God judge him? Judge him. His judgment fell on the nation. 70,000 Israelites died because of David's sin. That's called the representative principle. The king represents the nation. You may think that that's not fair, but it is fair because without it, you can't go to heaven. We need a representative, and thankfully, our representative is not an earthly king that would bring us 
That would bring us no security at all. Rather, we have an heavenly king, Jesus, and as long as he is faithful, we receive the blessings that he earns. As long as we are in him as our king, our salvation is, is secure. When you trust in yourself, when you refuse to put yourself under King Jesus, then you stay under King Adam. And you get what Adam deserved. You get what Adam earned for you. So when God refused to forgive and heal King Uzziah, the nation waited for the hammer of judgment to fall on them too. So that's why when we turn over to Isaiah chapter 6, and it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The nation had been waiting for this event. Or something like this, to maybe not this dramatic, but something like this to have happened. Because they knew that if the Lord did not forgive their king, then them as the people under the king could expect something similar. The vision begins with the prophet Isaiah seeing, if you look in your Bibles, you notice it says, I saw the Lord. And I, it's very likely, very, very likely in your translations, the same as mine. You'll notice that it says capital L, small o, small r, and small d. When you see that in an English translation, the Hebrew word behind that is the word Adonai. The word Adonai means the strong one, the powerful one, the influential one. It's not the same as when you see Lord down in verse 3. Do you see it there? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Notice how they're all capitals. Each letter is a capital. And when it's all capitals like that, it, behind that is the divine name Yahweh. That's a word you should never say without understanding that you are uttering the very name of God. Never say it without as much respect as you can possibly muster. But up here, we have the divine name Adonai. Here the name means mighty one, powerful. Sometimes ancient kings would call themselves Adonai Bezek. When you hear Alexander the Great taking on that name, it's kind of like Alexander Adonai, the great one, the powerful one. When God here reveals himself in this vision to Isaiah as Adonai, the powerful one, the one of heaven, the one whose glory is too great for the eye of man to see lest he die, the vision is contrasting God's power as a king with the glory of Uzziah. There's no question that Uzziah was a great king over Israel, for sure. But his kingship and power were nothing like what happened when he met the king of heaven and earth. In fact, he had offended that God and he was struck with leprosy and died in embarrassment the whole life. So now we see this. We see God presenting himself as the Lord. And then we see him reveal, revealing about him, something about himself. It says in the vision, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, my translation says, high and exalted. The vision of God's throne can lose some of its significance to us because we don't have kings. We don't know the ancient significance uh, of their construction, the construction of their thrones. But to almost anyone living in that day, when this throne is described there, it was absolutely unmistakable what God was saying, what Adonai was saying about himself. You can read down further that when Isaiah saw God on this throne, he thought he was going to die. So what's so significant about this throne? Well, let me explain. 
You see, kings sometimes got together for discussions or festivals or feasts. And when they visited each other in a group, there was a protocol. And first, the first part of that protocol was their thrones. When they sat together to talk, they did not all sit on chairs that were all the same height. Each one brought their own throne, and the height of your throne said something about the relationship you had to the other kings that were there, something about your ranking to the other kings. So, for example, if the king of Egypt was the most powerful at the time, he might have a throne that was four feet high. If the king of Babylon was second, let's just say, he might have a throne that was three and a half feet high. And the Assyrian king might have one that's three feet high. And the Hittite king, two and a half feet high. And the king of Cush and might have one a different level. And all the way down to the end to the king of Edom who was at the end of the line and didn't have much power, and he sat on a cushion. He said, hi, guys, how's it going? I don't want to offend anybody. I'm just here, you know, to visit with you guys. See, nobody cared about him. He was there for the food. Now, if somebody came with a throne higher than someone else, perhaps higher than the rank that was normally understood between these kings, you are sending a message to the kings who had a throne smaller than yours. Your throne height made a statement about how you perceive yourself among the other kings. Do you remember when the Bible describes Solomon's throne? It's clear in 2 Chronicles that Solomon was making a statement to the rest of the kings of the world when he built his throne. You'll notice that it says um, that Solomon's throne had six steps up to it. And on the end of each step, on each side, there was a lion. That's a throne. Why? Because back in, in uh, Genesis, it says that the king of Judah is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Solomon, when he built his throne, was saying, this is the throne that has been promised to the people of God for 500 years, and it's now true. And it's God who backs me up on this throne. It was a, <laughs> that was a throne. Even the king of Egypt didn't have a throne with six steps. And he gave Solomon his daughter to be his wife. That's the throne that King Uzziah sat on. That can mess with your head. And it did. Adonai's throne reveals uh, that it's high and exalted. Here it says that in the text. The image is of a, a throne so high that when one stands next to it, they are peering into the sky. It disappears into the clouds. And this isn't speculation. I'm not speculating to say that's how high it is. Psalm 68 said, talks, the whole psalm is about God's throne and the seat of God. And it says, sing praise to God, sing praise to his name. Extol him who rides the clouds. The Lord is his name and rejoice before him. When Acts 1 says that a cloud hid Jesus from their sight, this is what it's referring to. It's referring to the idea that a, throne, a, a cloud came under Jesus that he might ride it once again. God's throne reaches to the skies. That's how much higher his throne is than these little puny thrones down below. Adonai's throne sends a message 
to the rest of the kings of the world so that if you took Solomon's throne and sat it up on Mount Everest, it would be nothing more than a pimple compared to God's throne. There is no comparison. When the gods of this earth, our pastor read this last week and from Psalm chapter 2, when the gods of this earth gather all their might and all their power together against the Lord and they rebel against the Lord, what's the Lord's response? He laughs. He looks over at Gabriel and says, Gabriel, you see what's going on down there? I think they've all got together against me. Gabriel says, what? Are you sure? Yeah, look at them. That's the way the Lord feels when people, when the kings of earth rebel against him. There was a great British king who was coming into a banquet hall and as he walked into the hall, as he was walking in, all the people were along the sides. You've seen movies about this. And they were all bowing their heads as the king of England walked into the room. And the king, that particular king, said to his aide who was next to him, he says, why are they bowing their heads to me? Do they think I'm Jesus Christ? And the aide very wisely looked over at him and said, sire, if it was Jesus walking in here, they would all be on their faces with their face to the ground. You're just the king of England. How true that is. Notice what the text goes on to say. It says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. When you see that phrase, again, in our day, it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? The train of his robe filled the temple. He's got a long robe. Who cares? You need to understand what was going on in the time of the ancient kings when they met. So let's say that the kings were all sitting on their thrones, but they wanted to go for a walk in the garden, let's say, and see the king's gardens, and he he can show them off. What's the trouble with their ranking at that point? What if the one king was taller than the other king? You can't adjust that, unless you make him walk on stilts or something like that. So what they did was, they each had a robe that, preserve their ranking so the king of Egypt might have a robe that's six feet long dragging behind him and the king of then Babylon might have one five and a half feet and the king of Assyria one four and a half feet and the king the Hittite king he might have one three and a half feet until on and on you go down the road until you get to the king of Edom and his is like halfway up his back and hi guys he's just glad to be there right he doesn't want to pick a fight with anybody So that when we see that here Adonai's robe is the length that it is, it's making a statement. When it says the train of his robe filled the temple, what it means is this. Is Isaiah in the vision saw if this room was the temple... The Lord's robe, let's say, starts in this corner and it goes along the wall and traces all the way along the wall and then along back there and over here and all the way around and then it comes back over here and then it, just inside that, goes around again all the way around and around and around and around again all the way around and around and around until it finally get Isaiah's vision. It would get to the bottom of the throne and then it would go up the throne into the clouds and it would attach to the shoulders of the one sitting on that throne. What is God saying when he says the train of his robe fills the temple? Saying two things. One, it's saying that the one sitting on this throne is so far greater than any other king that their robes make absolutely no significance whatsoever but the second message is even more powerful for if you remember that when king Uzziah would have gone into the throne he would have had his robe dragging behind him 
And if you picture the imagery properly, you'll understand that King Uzziah, when he walks into the temple, was actually stepping on God's robe. That the robe of the one that he was walking on was so much greater than him that King Uzziah didn't... His robe is insignificant. In fact, it goes further. It says this, that when King Uzziah walked into this temple, God's temple, there was no room for any boasting. There was no room for somebody who tried to exalt them because whoever came into the temple had to be standing on the robe of the one who was the king of the temple. And if he's the king of the temple, then he's the king of kings. And to exalt yourself and to think that you can tell God how worship ought to happen in his temple while you're standing on his robe, honestly, friends, I'm I'm surprised that he lived. I'm su- I mean, before people touched the Ark of the Covenant and they died. King Uzziah, all he got was leprosy. Because in God's house, there is but one king, brothers and sisters. Let us understand that we are unwise, as 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says. It says, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. What that text of scripture means is this, is that when you and I as human beings start to exalt ourselves because we've compared ourselves to each other, you might have something that you can do better than him and he has something better to you. And we see some little difference between us and we start to think we're all that, we forget That in the sight of almighty God, brothers and sisters, we're barely alive. That we ought to be extremely humble. You know, when Isaiah saw this vision of God in the temple here, what you realize when you study the entire book of of Isaiah is, is that this vision governs the nature of the rest of the book after chapter 6. It changes Isaiah's understanding of mankind, and it changes Isaiah's understanding of God. That's why in chapter 40, Isaiah will write, All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. We're nothing but grass, brothers and sisters. How little would it take for your life, my life, to be snuffed out. How little? I almost got killed. This isn't in my notes, but I'll add it anyway. About a year ago, I almost got killed by an olive pit. How do you get killed by? I bit an olive that split my tooth, and when I went to the dentist, I had broken the tooth, and I said to the dentist, so what would have happened if like this was a hundred years ago and we didn't have modern medicine to fix this. He said, you'd be dead. He said, if we get infected and you'd have died, you'd be dead. Almost got killed by an olive. And it's true of every one of us. We're but grass, brothers and sisters. And to exalt yourself and think that you're all that, this passage... <clears throat> Here today is God's voice to us as much as it was to Isaiah. I want you to think about something. I want you to think about the fact that when we gather to worship here, right now, we are in the presence as much as in the Old Testament temple. 
I want you to understand that at the beginning of the service, when our pastor gives the greeting at the beginning of the service, that it's not him saying hi to us. It's God's greeting. It's God saying, you have come into my house. And when we leave worship, the benediction is given as God's blessing by the pastor. It is as though God is saying to us, go out into this world, my children, after you have met with me, and I want to bless you and, and, and strengthen you and, and say goodbye to you and tell you that I love you. Aaron was told to do this when the people came out of worship and then left in Deuteronomy, or rather Numbers chapter 6. Think about when their children, when the children, the mothers brought their children to Jesus to have him bless them. That's the end of the service. It is, it's not the pastor. The pastor is standing in for God, doing what God is telling him to do. Do this for me. Behind the blessing at the end of the Christian worship service is our Father's blessing. That means, brothers and sisters, that at this moment and each time when we gather together on the first day of the week to meet here in worship, we are walking into now the presence of God And to walk into worship thinking too well of ourselves than we should in the presence of a holy God is not wise. We might come to worship and think that our wealth or our education or our fitness or our influence or our position in this life is something to boast about. If we do that, we walk into the temple just like Uzziah did. If we might, we might be an influential person here on earth or even a king. I don't think there's any kings here today. But even if we were a king, be ever so careful, brothers and sisters, especially walking into worship because we are in the presence of God just like we were, just like Uzziah was in the Old Testament. Do you remember what the great king, the greatest man on the earth at the time, his name was Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, do you remember what he boasted about? He said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The Bible says that while these words were still on his lip, he was struck with by, uh, boanthropy, which is a psychological disorder whereby a human thinks that they're a bovine, a cow, he went around eating grass for seven years, if my memory serves me correctly. Finally, he was humbled. And when God restored his sanity, he said this, God's dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? In fact, the very last line that we hear from Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel is this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And he is. And he is. We would be wise not to put ourselves in a position before God where we need humbling. Here are two men in this passage. Let me finish with this. Here are two men. A prophet of God and a pagan king who both got a taste of the, what true greatness looks like 
Both saw God's perfection, power, and glory. And both became aware of their frailty. Both thought they were going to die. I think it's a truth that inspired the Apostle Paul to write in Philippians. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Brothers and sisters, when we exalt ourselves and drive down others, especially those who trust in Christ as we do, we show ourselves to be walking in the sandals of King Uzziah or of the bovine days of Nebuchadnezzar. We show ourselves to be unaware of the majesty of God as much as a cow. Such a man who has a low opinion and awareness, uh, such a man has a low opinion and awareness of the majesty of God and an opinion too high of himself or herself. Such a person is self-deceived and might as well be considered an atheist For surely when King Uzziah entered the temple and insisted that his way be done, that is in direct contravenance to the command of God, he was no better than one who had no awareness of God at all. He was acting at least like an atheist. So brothers and sisters, our word to us is this. Let us give ourselves over to the grace and mercy of God that we all stand before his throne of judgment someday and that that throne is very high and exalted and the train of his robe fills the temple and before this throne there is no room for boasting no matter who we might be or what position we might come to. Instead, our hope is not in ourselves but in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. God, our Heavenly Father, open our eyes, we pray. Not too much because it almost killed Uzziah and Isaiah. But at least open them enough, Heavenly Father, that we get a right view of ourselves and a right view of God and a right view of you and that we are humble and compassionate and that we stand in your presence only by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Open our eyes this much, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.